0: Well, good morning again, church. We are this morning back in our series on the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better, so don't give up. We'll be in Hebrews six thirteen through 20, if you have your scripture with you, if you have your Bibles. Um, as, if you are able, will you please stand as it is read this morning out of honor and reverence to God's holy and inspired word. This is the word of the Lord. a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, may your Holy Spirit be opening our minds, opening our hearts, aligning them to you, drawing them closer to you, may we be transformed by your word this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. How do you feel about boats? I'm at the place in my life where I really want to be friends with somebody who owns a boat. I don't want to own a boat. When I was younger, this is for a reason, because when I was little, my grandfather was very much into boats. He lived in Savannah, and so we would, he would often get boats, and we'd go out in the ocean and fish and boat around. But he was cheap, so he didn't want to actually buy like a nice boat. He would buy old boats and try to fix them up. I remember one time when I was like 9 or 10, uh, we had to be towed in by the Coast Guard twice in one week. The first time, they were nice about it. The second time they remembered him, and they weren't, as they weren't, they weren't quite as generous about it. But when we, I remember when we were out there in this boat that was broken down, we, we, we could do nothing. We were totally subject to the waves and the currents and the wind, and the boat was going to go where it was going to go, and we had no control over it. But it's not just little boats owned by your grandfather. It's large boats. Even the largest ships are subject to the waves and the winds and the currents and the conditions of the ocean. I like how a motor journalist, uh, Richard Hammond puts it where he says, I don't like boats. You can't trust boats. You can't trust any vehicle that isn't necessarily where it was when you last parked it, which is absolutely true. And no matter how large and formidable your ship might be, it has to have a sturdy anchor. I was doing a little bit of research and I found the Viking anchor company and they say this on their website. Your anchor is one of the most important pieces of equipment to ensure safety. It should be 100% reliable and capable of holding you in place, even in challenging weather conditions. By securing your anchor, you can keep a safe distance from hazards and enjoy your boating experience with peace of mind. And I'm like, wow, that is profound if you think beyond just physical anchors and physical ships. Because our passage this morning in Hebrews 6 is pointing to this exact thing, this very sort of anchor. Not one that goes to a literal ship, of course, but one that is an anchor for our very lives, our very soul. The author of Hebrews has given these powerful warnings from Hebrews 5 through the first part of Hebrews 6 that Adam has preached on, these powerful warnings against apostasy, so much so That if we're not careful, if we read just that end of Hebrews 5, beginning of Hebrews 6, and ignore or don't know the context of the rest of the book of Hebrews or don't know the context of Scripture, we may come away thinking, my salvation is hanging by a thread. My status with God is on the thinnest of margins, and I better be real careful. Which is not, of course, what Scripture teaches. This is if we understand the whole message of the Scripture, the whole message that God is giving us in the Bible, we understand that Hebrews 6, while it does give those important warnings, we get the passage we read just a minute ago, the end of Hebrews 6, the second half, which so powerfully gives us the truth that we can indeed be absolutely assured of our salvation, so long as that assurance is in the right place. British theologian Donald Guthrie put it this way. He said, What the writer of Hebrews is concerned to show is, one, the solemnity of God's promises, two, His unchangeable character, and therefore, three, the absolute certainty of His word. This is really an explanation of the basis of the Christian's full assurance of hope. Having given these stern warnings, now he is going to explain on what basis a Christian might rightly have full assurance of the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, what we see in our passage this morning is this important truth, is that the promises of God, guaranteed by who he is and his character, are what gives us assurance an anchor for our soul, both for tomorrow and for eternity. I think we see that in three ways throughout this passage. Uh, we see, first, we see the substance of God's promise, or what is the anchor made of? We see that in verses 13 through 15. Second, we see the foundation of God's promise, or what are we anchored to? Verses 16 through 18. And then finally, we see the results of God's promise, or how does this give the vessel stability and security in the last couple of verses, 19 and 20? So first off, the substance of God's promise, or what is this anchor made of? The author of Hebrews is making this argument that we can have assurance and a sense of stability, and he does that by speaking to his Hebrew-Jewish original audience, by going to the first patriarch Abraham. The original audience would have, of course been deeply familiar with Abraham, so much so that it was unnecessary and maybe even insulting for the author of Hebrews to go like, "Let me tell you who Abraham was." Like, no, no, we know who Abraham was. And it is so much so that he simply summarizes all of Abraham's story in one brief reference from Genesis 22. But us sitting here today, maybe we aren't as familiar with Abraham as that original audience would have been. Maybe we know we sang the song "Father Abraham" in Children's Church, but we didn't understand it because we thought it was Abraham Lincoln. That was my story. It was a long I, I know they explained it growing up, they said that, but I missed that one. I'm like, why are we singing about Abraham Lincoln? This doesn't make sense. Now it makes sense though. All right. But let me give you just a few highlights. This is the story of Abraham in just 30 seconds. We see in Genesis 12, actually the whole story of, of Abraham goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, then Abram, uh, calls him to come to a land he doesn't know, and he initiates the covenant. In Genesis 15, God formalizes the covenant between himself and Abraham with this split animals and a smoking firepot. We'll get to that in a second. In Genesis 17, God gives the sacrament for the covenant. Circumcision, the sign and seal of this covenant promise. And then in Genesis 22, God gives this confirmation of the covenant through an oath after Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But there's a word that's repeated over and over again. If you were listening to what I just said in that brief retelling, And that word is repeated not just in Abraham's life, but it is repeated throughout Scripture. And that word is covenant. Covenant. Covenant is God's way of relating to his people. The heart of the covenant is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That refrain that is repeated over and over and over again throughout Scripture. So what is a covenant? Well, first, a covenant does a few things. A covenant defines the relationship. And a covenant, biblically speaking, is God's DTR, define the relationship conversation. Human relationships have these all the time, whether we label them such as not or not. But second, a covenant lays out the behaviors appropriate to that definition. And then third, the covenant lays out the stipulations, the rewards, and the consequences of keeping or breaking the covenant. A couple of uh, uh, more practical human examples. We know this when we uh, engage in an employee-employer relationship. When you become an employee of someone, you make a covenant That says, I will work for you so many hours a day, so many hours a week, doing this job, doing that task. And in return, you will provide me with income and with benefits and all of that. If you stop paying me, I will stop working. If I stop working, you will stop paying me. That's the covenant. I have such a covenant here with this church. Let's do several of those. More deeply, uh, on a romantic level, we get this. When things go from vague to intentional, you have that DTR conversation. Are we just friends? Are we just hanging out? Or is this substantive? Is this relationship going somewhere? And if we are now boyfriend and girlfriend, we are now exclusive. And there are certain things that given that relationship and that reality, there are certain things that are appropriate and are not appropriate. You're not allowed to date anyone else. Because we are in a relationship. And then, as things go from dating to engaged, from engaged to married, the definition of the relationship changes, expands, gets deeper, and therefore the stipulations and the behaviors change appropriately. A couple of quotes that I love to kind of put this in a better framework, explain this better. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Covenant theology is the basic understanding of the whole Bible story and a description of the way in which God relates to His creation and humanity by way of His very great eternal promises. Covenant is not the only thing in the storyline of the Bible, but it is the undergirding structure that unites the whole and makes sense. Of it. O. Palmer Robertson. This is one of the greatest quotes on what is covenant theology. What is When we talk about the covenant of scripture, O. Palmer Robertson puts it this way. He says, how do you define the covenantal relation of God to his people? A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenant re, covenantal relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death relationship. Bond. And then finally, just a brief summary from Susan Hunt in her book, Heirs of the Covenant. If you haven't read that book, highly recommend it. It's on our resource table. Can't say enough good things about it. In chapter one, she goes through and she is talking about what a covenant is, and it's all of these things at the same time. She notes that a covenant is relational, restorative, sovereignly initiated, sovereignly sustained, Trinitarian, corporate, generational, compassionate, integrative, and both exclusive and inclusive. Now, I wish I could preach a whole sermon just going through that. Maybe one day I will. But for this morning, I have to leave it there. And if you want to dive in deeper, go get uh, her book off the shelf out there. But the point is, we see all of this in Abraham's life back in Genesis. God calls Abraham to trust in him, to follow him, to go to the place that he doesn't know. And God says, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation and the nations of the earth will all be blessed through you. Now, Abraham trusts God and he does what God tells him to do, but he still, he goes and he says, God, how will I know? How can I be sure So in Genesis 15, God formalizes the covenant. I'd encourage you to go back and read Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22 later today. But in the interest of time, we're going to do a summary this morning. But God, in Genesis 15, in response to Abram's question, how can I know? God says, all right, Abram, go and bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And Abram says, I know what we're doing. Good. How many of you had entered into a serious Uh, contractual deal in one way or another, whether it's a business deal or a corporate deal or a mortgage or a loan or even a marriage itself. How many of you, when you entered into that relationship, did you bring a farm animal with you? Imagine going to your home closing, you're closing on your mortgage and you bring a cow with you into the mortgage, the, the closing office. Now, even weirder, now you, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure you didn't do that, but I guarantee at the point of like where it's time to sign the papers, you go, where can I cut the cow in half so we can close this deal? But that's exactly what's going on in Genesis 15. God says to bring these animals and Abram instinctively knows, he knows from culture, he knows, I know what to do. He takes all these different animals and he cuts them in half long ways and he lays the pieces out. Because this was common practice in the ancient Near East of how you solemnize a deal, a covenant. You would cut the animal in half. Both parties would speak the terms of the covenant arrangement and then they would pass between the halves of the animals together. And the more significant the deal, the bigger the deal, the more important it was, the larger and the more animals you would use which is why when God asked, he asked for one of everything, right? And they would pass between it. And what they were saying as they passed between these split halves of animals, they were saying, this is the covenant deal we have made. This is the covenant arrangement that we have made together. If I break my part of this covenant, may it be done to me as we have done to these animals. And they would both speak it and pass through it together. A very interesting note there in Genesis 15, if you go and read that, you'll note that as God proclaims His covenant promise again to Abram, the two parties there, Abram and God, do not pass through the animal halves together. God puts Abram off to the side and God comes as a smoking firepot, and just side note, anytime in the Old Testament in particular, but throughout Scripture, anytime you see smoke and fire miraculously showing up, that's God showing up. So as a smoking firepot, God makes His presence known, puts Abram off to the side, proclaims the covenant, and God alone himself passes through those animal halves. What God was saying was, Abram, this is my covenant promise with you. And Abram, if I break this covenant promise, I die. But Abram, because you are standing off to the side, and I am the one that is passing through these animal pieces, Abram, if you break this covenant promise, I die. God is putting it all on him. He is the one that made the covenant. He is the one that sustains the covenant. And he is the one that bears the punishment for the breaking of the covenant. But then in Genesis 17, God gives this sign and the seal of that covenant, this sacrament of circumcision, this physical sign marking those that belong to the covenant community. And that is in Genesis 17 where God actually changes Abram's name from Abram, father of many... Which at the time he had none, to Abraham, father of nations. I always picture that when God, when Abram came to his, his servants and his, his household and said, Uh, God's changing my name. And they're like, Finally. The name never worked. Father of many, you have no kids. Uh what's, what's it now, Abram? What's, what's the new name? Abraham. Abraham. Father of nations? That's worse. But the promise is expanded, right? And then in Genesis 22, the chapter that Hebrews 6 refers to, God confirms the covenant with an oath, which is what Hebrews 6 here is about. Abraham, Abraham was 99 when his son Isaac was born. This child of the promise, this miracle child, through whom he said, "Okay, this is the way God is going to answer the promises. This is through this child, Abram, I mean, through this child, Isaac, that God is going to answer all these promises that He has made to me." But then God says, Abraham, why don't you take your son, your only son, who you love, take him up on top of the mountain and sacrifice him. Now again, in the ancient Near East, this idea of sacrificing your firstborn was not an unheard of idea to the pagan cultures around. This was not completely off the wall to Abraham's line of thinking. So Abraham trusted God. He said, I don't know what God is up to. Maybe he will resurrect my son. I don't know, but I'm going to follow he was, Abraham was willing to do it, but of course you read Genesis 22 and you see God stopped Abraham before the knife fell and God swore an oath by himself, by his own name, confirming that covenant promise. Now that's a long way to explain what is in one verse here in Hebrews 6, but I felt it was important. Jesus echoes this very truth in John chapter 10, where he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. The covenant promise that God is our God and we are his people. That is our anchor for our soul. But if that is our anchor, the promise that God is our God and we are his people, then what is that anchor anchored in? What is it rooted in? Well, that's point two here. The foundation of of God's promise. What are we anchored to? This answer is a little bit simpler, a little bit shorter. It's the Sunday school answer. It's God. We are anchored to him. Which is why it is significant that the oath that God takes in Genesis 22 is on himself. You know, we don't take oaths often. I've mentioned this. You might have taken an oath when you get married. You may have taken an oath if you've become a citizen of another nation. You may have taken an oath in the military. You may have taken an oath if you served as a, as a witness in a court. Our, our officers take oaths to fulfill the office they've given as elder or deacon. Adam and I took oaths when we were ordained as pastors. You take an oath when you become a member of a church. But it's still, it's not a normal thing. And in all those situations, it feels like we're, we're taking an oath to a, a very comfortable known sort of thing. But what happens when we're trying to take an oath to overwhelm doubt? I'm reminded of the movie The Princess Bride. The man in black is climbing the wall, the cliffs of insanity, and Inigo Montoya is waiting at the top. And he offers to help him to get up to the top. But he says, I don't, th- I don't think you'll accept my help because I'm only waiting around to kill you. That does put a damper on our relationship he tries to come up with like, hey, is there any way you can trust me? And finally, he says, I swear on the sword of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. And the man in black says, throw me the rope. And he gets to the top. Because he takes that oath on something greater than themselves, on something that is deep and important. The promise is not on just the person giving the promise. It is on something greater, more foundational, more trustworthy. And God is doing that exact same thing in his covenant promise, in his covenant oath to Abraham, and then, of course, to all of his people. God is swearing, though, he's making his promise on the most foundational, the most trustworthy, the most unchanging thing possible, which is him, God himself. Malachi 3:6 puts it this way, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is a foundational element of this great promise. I, the Lord, do not change. We, as people, change. Sometimes we change for the better. Sometimes we change for the worse. But just because I made a promise a long time ago, that in and of itself does not automatically presume that I'm going to keep that promise. God, however does not change. He never abandons his promise. He never abandons his promise to Abraham. God's unchangeable purposes are rooted in the fact that God himself is an unchangeable God. The anchor of God's promise, the anchor of the covenant is rooted in the secure foundation that is God himself. So given that, given the anchor, given the the rooting of that anchor, where does that leave us? Well, that finally is the result of God's promise. Or how does this give the vessel, our heart, our soul, our very lives, stability? What does this mean for all of us? It means that we can indeed be sure of our salvation. We can be sure of our place as God's chosen, redeemed, regenerated by Him because it's not in you. It's not of yourself. We have been chosen for redemption by the Father. That redemption has been accomplished by the Son and that redemption has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian work of God's redemptive plan. But it is all God. It's not you. If all that is true, and somehow, well, I still could lose my salvation, I could still be a Christian and then not be a Christian, well, that means that you are greater than the one who has worked and accomplished that salvation. I do like how John MacArthur puts it this way If I could lose my salvation, I would. We call this truth the perseverance of the saints. Simply put, what God begins, he will surely finish. The big question that every human has to wrestle with, at least should wrestle with, and if they don't, they're in denial what happens when you die? Don't think of that question in a generic sense what happens when one dies? What happens to you when you die? To put it another way, you say Christian, those of you who are in Jesus Christ, redeemed by him, you say Christians go to heaven when they die, they are with Jesus. The question then is, how can I know that I am a Christian? How can I know for certain right now that when I die, I will be with Christ in his presence in glory? Because y'all, most religions, I would argue every other religion, offers no such assurance. Every other faith, every other religion offers the plan. They lay it out before you. And they say, if you can stick to the plan well enough, you might get there. Good luck. Christianity doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. The problem with the question could be this. How can I know that I will be with Christ when I die? How can I know I will go to heaven? How can I know I am saved? All too often, that question drives us inward. Have I believed the right beliefs? Have I prayed the right prayer? Have I walked the right aisle? Have I been sorry enough for my sin? Have I had enough faith? Have I done the right things? Jumped through the right hoops? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But y'all, the worst thing we can do if we are looking for assurance of our status with God, if we are looking for assurance of where do we stand with God now and where will I stand with God on the day of my death and where will I stand with God for eternity, the worst place we can go is internal. Don't go looking inside yourselves. When we look deep in our own heart and mind, we're often, we're still going to find junk. I don't care how clean your house is. If I come into your home right now and start digging in your couch cushions, I'm going to find some junk. I'm going to find some crumbs and some dirt. What's the point of all these dramatic warnings in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6? The warning buzzer. Y'all, this is a means by which God is preserving His people. It's another means by which God is saying, quit looking inward for your assurance. Look to me Remember a few weeks ago, maybe several weeks ago now, I I brought up this theological concept called penal substitutionary atonement. Put simply, it is that Jesus paid the debt of our sins on the cross. He paid the penalty of our sin. He paid the debt of our sin. And if our sin truly was paid for by Jesus at the cross, it would be unjust for God to demand payment again from you. It would be unjust for God to say, Jesus paid it for you, but I'm demanding payment from you as well. We don't have to stand at heaven begging and hoping and pleading that we might get in. We have the ticket. A few weeks ago, I brought up this um, years ago when I got to go uh, to be in a NASCAR race and I had a hot pass. These are very hard to get. You can't buy them. You have to know somebody. And the guy I know is retired now, so he won't get in trouble if I mention this. Again, I could never acquire this thing on my own in any way, shape, or form. I couldn't buy it. I couldn't earn it. But it was given to me. And because I had that pass, even though it was obvious I didn't belong there, I had no business being in the pits of that race, no one could say anything. Because the pass was genuine. It had the NASCAR emblem embossed on there. It had my name on there. No one could deny me entry, even though it was clear I didn't belong. In Genesis 22... God stopped the knife in Abraham's hand before it came down upon his son, Isaac, as he went to offer it. And, G- and God offered, he said, don't kill your son. Here, I provided a substitute. I provided a sacrifice to substitute instead. The ram caught in the thickets. But I love how Sally Lowe Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Many years later, another son would climb another hill carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. Only this time, God would not stop the death blow that was coming down on his son as he did with Isaac. But y'all, because of that, because God did not spare His own Son, our salvation is assured if our salvation is based upon that. It's based upon Him. Not you, not your works, not how good you are, not in how well you're progressing in holiness and sanctification. Your salvation is secure because it is based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is based upon the father who did not hold back the death blow upon his own son. It's not based on you. Alistair Begg years ago, imagine the conversation between the man on the cross who asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, today you'll be with me in paradise. He, he, He imagines the story of that man crucified on the cross next to Jesus, showing up at the gates of heaven and an angel meeting him going, what are you doing here? And they're trying to explain He's like, well, tell me about your, your theology, your, your understanding of justification by faith alone. And the guy's like, I don't know. Well, what about the theology of Scripture? Oh, I got nothing. And out of frustration, the angel blurts out, on what basis are you here? And he simply says, the man in the middle cross said I could come. Y'all, well, there's so much that can weigh on us, that can cause us to doubt our salvation, our own sin, chief among them. I want to share with you two bits of encouragement that we can be rooted and grounded, our anchor secure in the salvation that is Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice for us. First from Martin Luther, you're doubting your salvation because the devil is reminding you of how sinful and terrible you really are. Martin Luther says this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, and what of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And finally, I want to close this morning. Great passage from Romans. Romans 8:38. Very familiar Paul is laying out, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us. And that includes you. When God has grabbed a hold of you, it doesn't matter how hard you might fight him. You are not stronger than his grip doesn't matter how apathetic you might be from time to time. You are not stronger than his grip. His grip is strong. His grip is secure. His grip is eternal. And that's what these tables is all about. When we come to the Lord's table, we partake of communion. We are feeding upon the truth that God is faithful. And the work of Christ is secure and sure. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning. That you would draw us to yourself. That you would keep our eyes and our hearts fixed upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Our salvation is secure because it is not based upon us, where we are, what we have done, who we are. It is secure because it is secure in who you are and who you say we are. We are a new creation, a royal nation, a holy priesthood. Chosen by you. May we rejoice in the surety of our salvation. This morning and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.